Amazon, the CEO got $213 million last year, and that was 6,474 times as much as median worker pay at the company, which was about 32,800. Welcome to the Political Economy Project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that produces content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Anderson, who directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and is a co-editor of the IPS website, inequality.org. We'll be discussing a new report Sarah co-authored titled Executive Excess 2022. The CEOs at America's largest low-wage employers are grabbing huge raises while workers and consumers struggle with rising costs. Sarah, thanks so much for your time. Glad to be here. Thank you. So let's go right into the port. What are some of the key findings from your research? Well, we do this report every year on executive excess, the gaps between CEO and worker pay. And this year, we wanted to get a picture of corporate pay practices during the pandemic. You know, there's been so much talk about how low-wage workers have gotten raises. And so we focused in on the 300 U.S. corporations that have the lowest median worker pay. And what we found is that at more than a third of these companies, worker pay did not even keep pace with inflation. And overall, the gaps between CEO and worker pay rose to about 670 to 1 which was up from 604 to one the year before. And so I I guess our overall key finding is that even though some low-wage workers did get a bit of a a pay increase last year, in most cases, it didn't keep pace with inflation and CEO pay, meanwhile, totally skyrocketed. And this is incredibly offensive, obviously, when we've just gone through this pandemic and you see the billionaires have increased their wealth by trillions of dollars. Could you talk about the stock buybacks that help inflate the price of the stocks? Yeah, well, we zeroed in on these companies where worker pay did not keep pace with inflation. And we asked the question, well, was that just because they just didn't have enough cash to put into these wage increases? And instead, what we found is that more than two-thirds of them had blown company resources buying back their own stock instead of doing things like raising worker pay or other things that would help the company in the long term, like research and development or training or buying new equipment. And why do they do this? Well, when you buy up a bunch of your own stock from the open market, it artificially inflates the value of it. And that inflates the value of CEO pay because they get most of their compensation in some form of stock-based pay. So it makes CEOs happy. It makes wealthy shareholders happy, but stock buybacks do absolutely nothing for ordinary workers. And it actually parasitizes these corporations from actually achieving long-term functionality and growth at at the short-term expense of everyone else. And so one of one of the things that was also really interesting was how much federal government spending is supporting a lot of these corporations. Could you talk about what that relationship may be with some of these these companies? Yeah, I mean, all of this is outrageous enough, but then when you think about how we as taxpayers are actually enabling and supporting a lot of these companies, it just makes your your blood boil even more. 
And so in our sample of 300 low-wage corporations, 40% of them are federal contractors. So they're getting taxpayer dollars through contracts to perform various services or provide goods to the government. And in, in many of these cases, the, the, the behavior of these corporations is, is nothing that we should be supporting. And maybe I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. One is Amazon, which, you know, I don't have to say a whole lot about their treatment of workers and the union busting that they're doing right now. Um, and people don't think of Amazon as a major contractor, but they are. They, they get, they got it more than $10 billion worth of contracts from the Defense Department to provide web services. And there's more money they're getting from the CIA in places where we don't even know the details because it's classified. And then another company that we've been lifting up a lot is Maximus. This is a company that gets billions and billions of dollars from the federal government to run call centers for Medicare and Obamacare, for example. And and they're they're a low-wage company. In fact, before Biden passed an executive order requiring contractors to pay at least $15 an hour, a lot of these workers were making $10 and change per hour. And they have been trying to organize a union at their plants in, in the South, in Mississippi and Louisiana. It's a largely Black female workforce at these facilities. And the company, like Amazon, undercutting the union. And meanwhile, these workers are, have been doing walkouts to demand better pay and health benefits. Some of them are answering questions for their job about Obamacare, and they can't even afford health insurance themselves. And so I think, you know, when people know about this, that we're, you know, I haven't even talked about the CEO pay gap at Amazon. How could I forget? At Amazon, the CEO got $213 million last year, and that was 6,474 times as much as median worker pay at the company, which was about 32,800. And at Maximus as well, the company, the CEO made about $8 million last year and median worker pay was in the, the 30 something thousand range. And so, you know, here we are as taxpayers and across the, the political spectrum, people are outraged about these huge gaps between CEO and worker pay. And yet we're enabling them through our taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And there's how many hundreds of thousands of Amazon workers that are also getting government subsidies on food and healthcare that we're also Gosh. providing on, on the other end of that as well. And you, Do you double dipping or yeah. double dipping in the, in the government, you know, co coffers by getting contracts and also paying their workers so little that they have to rely on government assistance. And could you talk about the CEO ratio pay, what are some historic examples of a more equitable ratio? Yeah, well, back in 1980, the typical gap between CEO and worker pay was about 40 to one. Now it's several hundred times to one. And there's no argument that that change is because CEOs have just gotten so much smarter and they perform so much better. It's, you know, it's a total joke that we have a pay for performance system when it comes to CEO pay. In fact, we cited a study in the report that looked at CEOs who were in their job, like over the last decade or so, they looked at several hundred CEOs and the ones where the companies performed the best had the lowest paid CEOs. So it's like there's a, you know, a, 
inverse correlation or however you put it between CEO pay and, and performance. And, you know, why does it persist? It's, you know, largely because corporate boards have bought into this view that it's the guy in the corner office who's almost single-handedly responsible for the value of a company, which we all, we always knew was nonsense. But after two years of a pandemic, when so many low-wage workers have been on the front lines, really keeping our economy going, helping to keep people safe, helping to keep food on families' tables, it's just, you know, ridiculous to argue that these people are not contributing, you know, substantially, significantly to the value of their companies, and they should be getting a fair reward. But these corporate boards, often they're made up of other executives from other companies who don't like to rock the boat. And in terms of government policy, we've allowed them to get away with it. Yeah, the billionaire cult of personality, the 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 great man or whatever you want to call theory. it. Yeah, that these people single-handedly are, you know, genius in creating all this value yeah. and it completely obscures all yeah. the hands that have let, made it. Yeah. Let me just tell one more story about Please. that cuz I just can't get over this. Carnival, the cruise company in 20 um 20 they were, you know, in facing complete crisis, right? All the cruise companies were and at a point when, you know, their industry was shut down, they still had employees stranded literally in the, in the ocean, like on ships. They had not gotten these people home to safety. And what was the corporate board focused on at that moment? They were figuring out how to concoct a special pandemic bonus re retention grant for their CEO because in their mind, like if that guy left, the whole thing would, you know, fall apart. They had to do whatever they could to to retain this CEO. Well, they had employees stranded in the middle of the ocean. I mean, it's I, I shouldn't laugh, but the, it's so preposterous. And the the punchline here is they spent all this money retaining this guy. But what did he do? He left the company in 2021. So. You know, the, the idea that you just have to beg and grovel and, you know, keep this so-called top talent when these often are the most disloyal people who will walk away in a crisis unless you pay them, you know, these ridiculous sums. Well, I want to talk a bit about policy solutions, policy demands, and also going into media and agitation, which you've been doing the tremendous work over the last couple of decades, and then how we can organize to actually make this happen. So. You do go through some policy solutions. Could you share that with the audience? Yeah. Well, the solutions are kind of in a couple of different buckets. One is legislative. And then there's what could President Biden do without having to wait around for Congress? And, and all of this, I feel like, should be in sync with the, the good work being done by shareholder activists. You know, there's great work around the Amazon annual meeting and, and so forth. But I'm primarily focused on policy. So I'll talk about that. For years now, we've been pushing the idea of using the tax code to incentivize companies to reduce CEO pay and lift up worker pay. Senator Sanders and Warren and a, a bunch of others on the House side have introduced a bill called the Tax Excessive CEO Pay Act. And under this bill, the wider your gap between CEO and worker pay, the higher your corporate tax rate would be. And so this general idea, well, it's already in force in a couple cities in the U.S., in Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco. They both have taxes like this that penalize companies that have big gaps between CEO and worker pay. 
and it applies to not not just companies based in those cities, but companies that do business there. So the Walmarts, the Wells Fargo's, that you know these big companies are all paying those kinds of taxes in those cities. We we could have that at the federal level, and it did come into the discussion around the Build Back Better Act and how to pay for it. So it's not just you know out there a fringe idea. It is, has become much more in the center of the debate. But with the gridlock in Congress, we're thinking more and more about what could President Biden do. And he has already done some good things in terms of putting conditions on government contractors, like requiring them to have a $15 minimum. But we think the pay gap is also really uh, a, a big problem. And there are many more things he could do that would be good for workers. So, for example, he could require them to sign neutrality agreements in union organizing campaigns. He could give companies that have narrow gaps between CEO and worker pay a leg up in contracting in the same way that we give some preferential treatment to companies that are uh, small businesses headed by uh, women and people of color and things like that, which are aimed at leveling the playing field, we could take that same concept and apply it to, to big corporations and encourage them to have narrower pay gaps. We could also require them to have workers on boards or give them extra points in, in contracting competition if they have worker representatives on their boards. So there's a whole bunch of tools that the president does have that I, I think would be wildly popular you know, there are polls that have come out recently that show 87% of Americans think the pay gap is a problem for the nation. It's not just a worker issue. It's like a, a concern for all of us. And the most startling survey finding, even for somebody like me, is that 65% of Republicans support a cap on CEO pay relative to worker pay. So those um, socialists, those damn socialists. It's, it's you know? so much more radical than what I've been talking about, which is just using tax incentives, using contracting incentives. They just want to put a ceiling on it. And you know, a much higher share of Democrats support that point of view. So I think it would be wildly popular. Also, urging companies that will likely be more productive because the extreme gaps we have in pay now are demoralizing for people at the bottom. And that contributes to higher turnover rates, which are very you know, expensive to deal with, especially in a, in a time like this with a tight labor market. And so I'm, I'm hoping that the administration will, will seriously consider that instead of, you know, they propose some good things that Capitol Hill should do, but he doesn't have to wait around for Joe Manchin or anybody else to take action yeah. on these things. There's a lot he could do to use the power of the public purse to push companies in a more equitable direction. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about the trickle-down economics and how it's been disproven again and again and again. And yet we see it in uh, under Trump in 2017, where he does the largest tax cut in history, $1.3 trillion. And people on the side of the Titans, I guess, they make the argument that, well, this is going to generate business, but it's been shown again and again that right. the rich will buy luxury goods with it, move it offshore. They never reinvest it into plants and equipment and into labor and into R&D as well. And even the stock buybacks, there used to be restrictions before 1982. And you, you mentioned right. this in the report that Federal regulators considered buybacks a form of stock manipulation, ban them, which it clearly is a form of stock manipulation, yeah. which is why we see Wall Street and 
the S&P and Dow Jones are through the roof. And now they're, they're starting to deflate again because there, there was a huge bubble. How do we get more of the workers to understand these things so that they can start demanding it within the companies? Because they all ultimately are going to be the folks who move these companies, move the politicians to demand these things. And they can shut down these companies if they can just get to a point where they are organized enough and they're all singing from the same sheet of music that this is just unacceptable. And it's not that the company has to even change its business practices. It just has to move the funds so that the people who are creating so much of the wealth are given some of it. And I know you're, you've been doing tremendous service the last many years reporting on this and IPS is doing great work in inequality.org as well. But how, how do we spread out the organizing message? Well, as frustrating as it all is, I do think this is a moment of hopefulness. I mean, when you have the surge of unionization efforts at places like Starbucks and Amazon and in very, you know, unusual places like Mississippi and Alabama, you know, the, the anti-union kind of stronghold parts of the country, and you're seeing workers rising up and talking about how much their bosses are making compared to what they're making and demanding their fair share. I do think it, it is a moment of hopefulness at, that we need to absolutely make the most of. And I think we need to connect that energy on the ground to the, the policy debates as well. The more that we can bring workers in motion into, you know, the halls of Congress and into meetings with the administration and really, and not just, you know, you know, expecting companies to do things voluntarily on their own that are, are pro-worker, but have the government really have their backs. It would be in the interest of these workers and in the whole, in the interest of the whole country. I mean, I think we, we never want to be in a position like we were in 2020, again, where such a massive share of our population was so close to the financial edge when a huge crisis hit that, you know, it didn't take that much to push them over and have to rely on government assistance. And so if we want to be in a much stronger position in the face of future crises, we need to address this, these pay disparities. We need to make sure that you know, it's possible to get decent pay and benefits so that you're more resilient. Um, and so I, I think the, the more that, that we can broaden this movement around unionization to be something that's good for the entire country and would be good, good at, for our economic health in, in general, the, the more people are going to be even, even more sympathetic. I mean, it's, it is remarkable to see the public support for these unionization drives, but I think it could be even broader if we we make the message not just about the, the, you know, the demands of these workers for a fair reward for themselves and their families, but how is this really going to make our whole economy more, more healthy? And as I was discussing before we started recording, I just came back from the AFL-CIO convention, Philadelphia, and Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. And in the report that, that we're talking about today that I'm going to put in the show notes and everyone should check out and read, you do a great job in really bringing the information together in very succinct pieces. And it, are you in touch with AFL-CIO? Are you in touch with folks from Labor Notes, different labor organizations, so that they can look at the information on the pay gap and the, these crazy ratios, but then specifically within 
the companies that maybe they're trying to organize or that there already are unions? Yeah, absolutely. Those, you know, very close allies with a lot of the labor groups and everyone should know about on the AFL-CIO website. I think the most popular part of the site is called Paywatch. And that's where they compile all of their CEO and, and worker data. And I think you can go on there and like type in your own pay level and fi find out how much more times, you know, the CEO of your company or other companies are, are making than you. They'll, they'll be relaunching the new version of that later this month, I believe, or maybe early July. But I work really hand in hand with the, the champions against excessive CEO pay at a lot of the unions and, and are, I'm really proud to be part of broader coalitions that involve folks trying to organize at, at Amazon and Starbucks and, and elsewhere. It's, it's the, we're, we're going to need everything, yeah. every, you know, source of energy and, and resources to throw at a situation where the other side is so formidable. We all know what kind of money is arrayed <laughs> against us. And so we really need the, the worker organizing, the shareholder organizing, the policy work, the pressure on the administration. We need all of it. And while I have you here, could you talk a little bit about inequality.org and how that came together and how people can interact with that as well? Yeah. So I work for the Institute for Policy Studies, and we have this site called inequality.org that is a go-to place for facts and figures on inequality, as well as ideas and solutions and inspir inspiring profiles of people who are fighting inequality. And we have a free weekly newsletter that you can sign up for on our website homepage that I think is essential reading every week to know what's going on. And the, the, we call it the horror, the hope, and the, the humor related to our extreme inequality. Great. And you also just spoke at the Poor People's Campaign. What, what do you hope can come from that, from the, the, the Poor People's March on Washington that just took place this past weekend? Yeah, thanks for raising that because this is an effort to build a multiracial fusion movement led by the poor and, and low-wage workers. And so it is a powerful combination of forces that, that has come together addressing the interconnected injustices of systemic racism, poverty and inequality, ecological devastation, and militarism. And so it, you know, covers all these interconnected issues. It is, you know, very much driven by the people most affected by our current system. And it's big and bold and, and, and loud. And they are mobilizing low-income and low-wage people to get engaged in the election and make sure that their issues and their voices are heard by the candidates. And they make a really compelling case. They've got the numbers to back it up that the, the voter block of the poor could be definitely the, the deciding voting block in this country. And to get them out there, more candidates need to speak to their issues. So for us, it's been a really inspiring partnership. We do a lot of research support for the campaign and it's been great to watch them grow. And there were uh, lots of labor luminaries on the stage, Sarah Nelson from the Flight Attendants Union, Mary Kay Henry from SEIU, uh, uh, workers from Bucks and, and Dollar General and other places. So it's a great partnership between groups that have primarily focused on anti-poverty measures with the labor movement. 
Well, I'm going to just want to ask you one final question as we're, we're heading out. What gives you hope? What gives you motivation? What gets you out of bed every day? And <laughs> how, how does that help? And, and how can that maybe give motivation to other people? I, I think what gets me out of bed every day is knowing how powerful the other side is and that we've all got to get out of bed every day ready to fight and make the most of the resources that we do have because otherwise they're, they're really going to you know keep rolling over ordinary people in the society. And I feel that is deeply wrong. And I'm so motivated by, like I said, the surge of unionization. I've got to meet some of the young Starbucks organizers and people, you know, standing up to Amazon, the most powerful company in the world probably right now. And, and I realize even when I think my job is hard, I think about the work that they're doing and I'm reminded about how much harder it is to do the kind of organizing work they're doing. And, and so if they can do it, I, I should be able to get out of bed and do my job as well. Well, Sarah Anderson, thank you for all that you're doing and thank you for your time. Thank you.